Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning in to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Carol Davis. She is the author most recently of The Nail in the Tree, Essays on Art, Violence, and Childhood. The Nail in the Tree narrates Carol Ann Davis' experience of raising two sons in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, on the day of and during the aftermath of the shooting there. Part memoir, part art historical treatise, these meditations lead her to crucial subjects, including whether childhood can itself be both violent and generative, the possibility of the integration of trauma into daily life and artistic practice and the role of the artists. She's the author also of two previously published poetry collections. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Carol, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You have written this book called The Nail in the Tree, and you wrote it basically in the wake of Sandy Hook. Your kids didn't, weren't in the school that actually where the shooting happened, but in the school district. So you've lived in this traumatized yeah. town. And what's interesting is this is the first prose book you've ever done, right? So like, what, what about trauma moved you to go from poetry to prose? Because you write this sort of series of prose essays chronicling like your life in the year of the aftermath. I mean, why, why do that? Well, I mean, I was still writing poems all the time. And after I finished this book and went back and really looked at my writing practice over a number of years prior to that point, like I was always writing essays now and then. I was sort of an occasional essayist, um, but this experience seemed to call out for something, something in the shape of an, the essay that I needed. Um, I don't think, uh, I don't know. And sometimes, some other place, I, I said that like poetry calls to the momentary. So, like the momentary experience, often a momentary experience of beauty. Um, Whereas this experience called for sort of a deep dive trying to understand. I don't think I reached understanding. I, I, I don't, I kind of resist the idea that you could understand something like Sa Sandy Hook. Uh, that takes away a little bit of the sacredness of, of the violence that occurred there in terms of like what it did to people. Any kind of rational understanding can be overlaid over that, but that misses the full experience. So I think the essay gave me like a but little. When you say sacredness of the violence, it, it, do you really mean the sacredness of the trauma? Yeah, because, I do. I don't obviously don't mean that the violence is sacred, but the experience of violence by the people who experience it and the aftermath of it becomes sacred in the enduring of it. I, not the actor, but the the ways in which people are affected. So it's it's not even, yes, it's the trauma, but it's also the the experience of and the re-experience of, 
I guess I think the, the experience of it and the trauma of it might, there might be a difference between those two things. It, it's interesting because T.S. Eliot, right, the great, you know, mm-hmm. 20th century man of letters, turned his dissertation into the Harvard philosophy department and never defended it and went and became a banker and a poet in England. And, <laughs> and he said, you know, that one of his critiques of philosophy was he said, philosophers don't understand their metaphors. Mm-hmm. And he said, a poet never writes something without understanding the metaphor. I mean, there's not, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, does that ring true? Yeah. And also it, it's, it, yes. it's interesting because it, you've gone the opposite direction, kind of gone into prose. I mean, that's an interesting thing is that for, precision or reflection i mean what couldn't it's just um it's just a, a different kind of circling that i could do inside an essay do you know how like an animal will before they bed down they will circle and circle and circle and circle this the, the bedding place my like, dog does, does this every night and messes yeah. up my sheets so that's to me that's an essayistic move <laughs> you know it's like there's an idea down in there and I'm going to circle it and circle it and circle it and I'm I'm not going to commit to it till I've really looked at it a bunch of times from a def- bunch of different angles and that sort of spiraling to me is what I needed to do to revisit I guess the trauma but also to actually I was actually trying to reapproach the experience of for more information for myself and also to observe it as a sacred practice, I guess, is what I meant by the sacredness of the violence. Um, maybe that's my own way of trying to recover some sort of, I guess I just want to improve myself by everything that's happened to me. And so I was reapproaching the way an animal would almost. You write something in the book that I, I found, and as I've been rereading it in the light of Corona, I find so poignant. You say, part of this artistic childhood temperament is a fidelity to a close proximity with the outside world. In my case, that was a world of wind, sand, and ocean. From a vastness, creatures were spit up out of deep places during many head, headed and frequent storms. The The reckonings with these sometimes pleasing, sometimes frightening other beings led to intermittent but violent confrontations with people and events around me. How does one reconcile the shock of what is truly new and wild with the awareness that this thing is here in this world, along with team sports and television? I think, I I think about like the trauma you were going through in light of Corona and how, or in light of the Sandy Hook shooting and this disruption of the world that you lived in. And, and, but then as I was rereading, I was thinking, this is what everybody's feeling with Corona, right? This alienation. As you reread it there, it's really, really, it feels really written for this moment. I, I had the experience as you read that of not remembering it and having it be a new piece of information, you reading me that passage. And that just tells me that I've been through something since I wrote that. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, and and you're in the kind of. I mean, you are in the thick of it, right? I mean, as Northeasterners, I mean, uh, we both like this is the crazy nature of this thing. It's terrifying, but it was really terrifying. Uh, I mean, there was. I definitely recognize some of the same sort of parasympathetic uh, 
nervous system issues in the last six weeks or eight weeks that I felt after Sandy Hook in terms of the urgency and the just the feeling of threat. And your kids have lived through, now, this is interesting because they've lived through Sandy Hook and, and now they're living through Corona. What, I mean, what are the, and they're older now and, and, and they've yeah. been shaped by a trauma. So, I mean, but I'm just curious, like, yeah. what is the, what is the nature of their response? Like, what do you see that's their continuity, discontinuity? What, what's yeah. the kind of, what, what does that look like in their own yeah. experience? How has the one shaped or has it shaped the other? I'm not sure. Well, you know, it's mysterious, um, and I haven't puzzled it out, and partly that's because I haven't been able to talk to other parents a lot about how their kids are doing, and I definitely haven't talked to other parents who weren't here. You know, I've only talked to, like, classmates' parents, but they really, really fell in line and understood the gravity of this immediately. You know how there were some talk, I guess, in the news or around about like, you know, or some some communities where kids wanted to do play dates or they wanted to do sleepovers when school was canceled and they, yeah, didn't yeah, understand, yeah. they didn't understand like why they couldn't. And I don't know if it's because my kids were uh, 13 and going on 17. My older son turned 17 during this shutdown, but um they just, they never asked. They understood. They, they're they happy to be home. Uh, they're communicating and outreaching to their friends, you know, on uh, through video games and stuff. But And I've, I've wondered aloud a couple times to my husband, you know, do you think they're taking this really seriously because of what else has happened? You know, like that somehow they have a channel for grave danger. Um, and then my yeah, younger like Danger son. Danger Will Robinson, this kind of, you know, the law. Yeah, like they kind movie. of know, or they're reading it on their parents. You know, they're reading. Remember, I mentioned that I'm kind of like, I was at a heightened, I'm trying to stop doing this now and just live in the moment and not have a heightened sense of threat moment to moment in my house. You know what I mean? But like, was that something that they recall from seven years ago? Uh, that, that mom and dad were kind of like, it's, a stress is too much of a word, too little of a word, but it's not precise. But like, are they are they having any kind of, I guess, uh, somatic memories of those times? Um, as I kind of am, you know what I mean? Yeah, that that's interesting because it, it, because you know, it, also I saw a statistic the other day, like I, I don't know, somebody posted three weeks ago on Facebook or something that. Since the coronavirus, there has not been a single school shooting. Uh, which yes, this has been remarked to me, and and I'm just sort of like because we are not there, like right, exactly. I mean, but, but this is this thing. I mean, school shootings, like, it, it, I mean, it's kind of like lightning, right? I mean, it's not going to probably happen twice in right. the district, right? But that doesn't change the traumatic somatic memory you're talking about, right? Like you No, right. It's in the you, body. You're living as it's going to happen again. I mean, you're just you're kind of, of probably like I would guess, right? Like in this weird place of like, oh my god, what if it happens again? Well, not just that, but culturally since that moment, you know, and this isn't a complaint, but it's just a, a observation that because of the way that uh lockdowns were internalized by the entire nation as something we should do in response to these 
And because of the intensity with which we undertook to do lockdown drills, I mean, I, can, I really can't tell secondary trauma or primary trauma on that one. You know what I'm saying? I, I go back and forth in my mind about how much, how many lockdown drills anyone in the country should be doing. Um, I understand why we're doing them, but the amount of damage that doing them does. That's interesting. Secondary and primary trauma. So you're talking about like the the, term, the trauma of the event. Primary. And then right. these other things that conjure up the trauma. So they're not the same experience, but they conjure up the trauma. And so tra- and it's almost like you're re-traumatized. Well, or you're, or it's primary for some kids. So kids who didn't grow up in a district where there was a, a shooting still during the lockdowns, imagine the shooting, right? Imagine that there could be a shooting. Like it's hard to do a lockdown without having kids imagine that there's an intruder. So that would be a primary trauma for them. I'm not exactly articulating this, but I'm just saying like, I don't know that there's a way out of it, but there are two traumas there. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if some of my kids' relaxation over this break has just been not dealing with the entirety of the cultural way in which school is freighted now with the possibility of a shooting, not just in Newtown, but everywhere. Yeah, and it's interesting the way you talk about that, because this is the the thing that the, that the traumas condition each other, right? Like that, that the primary traumatic event conditions Mm -hmm. all these other traumatic events. And then the secondary traumas condition the way you experience the primary trauma, right? So there's this weird interplay where that, you know, if, if, to use a fancy overused term hermeneutical, like the, Hey, you know, you know, you interpret reality. Hermeneutics is all about interpretation. This kind of interpretive lens that yeah, you experience well, like reality with is always is always trauma colored. Yeah, another big theoretical word that's thrown around a lot that I think pertains here is the imaginary. You know, your imaginary, the imaginary in which you live. You know, so it's the it's the imag- the lockdown imaginary. T. S. Eliot says that even illusions have reality they have a illu- <laughs> illusionary reality well they call something into being you know and then it, it can't be un. it can't be a lens that's taken off again once it's put on so you have so you told me that you've been writing poetry in yeah. <laughs> in, in in light of corona do you want to share some verse with the, our my Sure. With me and our listeners right now. Um, yeah, I, I printed out a couple of things. I noticed that a lot of them, uh, this will resonate with you and your theological background, but everything feels like it's a question or a prayer right now. Hmm. Um, so uh, this poem that I'm going to read is kind of a prayer about trying to surrender or accept what the world is right now. It's called Let It Come. Let it come as the world comes, a crawling thing in blown daylight. The first birds of morning, how the world comes calling, how it catcalls and mocks 
and draws by melody its traps and trappings. Surrender to it, yours the first footfall, your fingertip breaking frost cover, last frost of spring, fresh, not salt water, on a foreign tongue that turns out to be yours. All of a sudden, let it come, the eddying emptiness of last year's sugar water where hummingbirds expect it. As it comes, let want come, let hunger in, and the urgency of forgotten things. Welcome as weary travelers, them come miles to give you news. As the dark wing comes, let it, cascading as it does down hillside its long shadows, and with ragged breath as if by melody to trap all trappings the way the river's eating its way along the roadside, road a trail almost, and you its homesteader. Go on, ask what saves you, and you have your answer. You in the seed bed or among the heavy reeds. This is the part where you part your lips and look upward, the half-gone wasp nest swaying thinly in thin breeze. It and you of someone's making. This is where you unspin from all that was into new becoming. As it will, let the world come. As the world comes, let it. That, that was beautiful. I mean, and I, I think of, um, as you were reading that last part of the wasp nest, I think of, um, there was a book written about Karl Barth, who's the greatest theologian of the 20th century, maybe the greatest theologian of modernity. Mm-hmm. But, but this guy, um, Eberhard Jungel, wrote this book, Interpreting Barth. It was a very short book, but he said, all being is in becoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and, and for Barth, like even God's being was in becoming, right? Like God moves, God, you know. Right, like, right, right. God is not static for him. He, he's God is always moving towards us and moving in creation, moving. And so that... It's interesting because there's this, as I'm listening to that poem, I'm thinking you don't choose whether or not to become, you can only participate in the becoming, right? Like, Right, right. You're becoming something. Yes. And the world is becoming something and the world is changing. You know, you are in the becoming of that. Yeah, and I mean, that poem seems seems like a, te- a a testimony or or a tribute to freedom in the sense of. I mean, I think most of us right now in the midst of Corona, just like in the midst of a traumatic event like Sandy Hook, feel like we're not yeah. free, right? Like we have no agency, right. and, and I feel like what you're saying is there, as hard and traumatic as reality is right now, there is agency. Like the, yes, yes, and, and that, that you can participate in your own becoming. Yeah. Well, and you know, it was, I don't know how quickly it happened, but right away in Newtown, I mean, that agency was expressed by the choose love and we are Sandy Hook, we choose love. That was, I mean, that, that ancient idea of like out of a helpless situation, you choose forgiveness or you choose, you know what I'm saying? Like that's an agency choice. You know, I control how I think about this. I control what I what I do or how I behave. Those are always in our control. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, this is this is the, the, the you know you are the agent in your own story, even though uh, it, it's complex, right? Because it's interesting because we do have this strange experience of being human, where we have this sense that we have control and agency, and yet we all have compulsions, right? And and things that I mean, I think like you know this is where Saint Augustine comes up with something like original sin, and 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 we do feel like this is a reality, right? That there are things that beset us that feel so oppressive and and limiting and kind of domineering in our lives. And yet we also know that we really do experience agency. And this is right, the razor thin line we live on, I guess, right? As as a poet, you're trying to constantly articulate this, right? Like Yes. The nature of the human experience is colored by by freedom and 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 bondage. Yeah. <laughs> and you kind of and you kind of look up at that wasp nest and you're like, what am I doing? Yes, I mean the choice in the poem feels like it's look up or look down, you know, or don't look, you know. I mean let let the world come or resist it. I mean <laughs> It's, I think I'm, I'm trying to argue not to resist these changes that seem so dark or bad. You know, like you could also choose to let that come into you, let that change you. I mean, that's a big idea that's around right now is the real tragedy of the situation we're in right now is if it doesn't change who we are, right? If, it, if we don't let it change us. Yeah, and it is inevitably going to change. I mean, this is the interesting thing, right? Like, it, it's I think late modernity is is kind of part of the thing that makes late modernity what it is, right? Is that we right. we have the sense of control, right? And mm-hmm. and and strawberries they don't grow in a field; they just come in aisle seven at the grocery store, and then right, and then all of a sudden you have this moment where. No one has control over anything. <laughs> but this virus seems to have the control, and this virus, which we which we cannot, you know, and the, and these debates we have about the economy and who's the most vulnerable and should we open up or, or or shouldn't we and how do we deal with this? It just reveals right that that this um, that, that there's a difference between agency and control, right? You can you can be free and have agency and still not have control. But there's a, been a lot also about the one thing you can control is whether you hurt another human being by infecting them because with your irresponsible actions, right? I mean, a lot of right, the narrative right, right. around control has gone toward you have the control to stay home. You know, you and I've t- you know I think people take a lot of meaning from that, take a lot of heart, like that you're doing something good by wearing a mask or by um by staying home and i mean i guess there's i guess it's the micro agency that interests me a little bit rather than the macro agency and that may be and that may be a result of sandy hook in that the macro agency was an uncontrollable thing with sandy hook too one couldn't control um what kind of policy no matter what one did one couldn't necessarily make uh make a difference in terms of gun policy, but you could make a difference in terms of practicing kindness toward others or um, just toward, toward being loving. And that resonates with me with the choices we're making here where we don't have control over the, 
I mean, in truth, we do have control over the gun policy. We just aren't like no one person can make everyone else do it. But that's sort of similar to no one person can make everyone wear a mask or stay home. So there's a public policy parallel here, I think. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the gun lobby where I think it, it, it it's interesting, the gun control issue, that most Americans have a big, there's a big consensus around responsible gun control issues. Like most people want background checks. Most people right. um, don't want... Yeah. Most people don't want people to be able to cross state lines and go to a gun convention at a convention center and just buy guns in a way that they don't have to get checked and they can kind of then ship them into other, you know, bring them back into other places and use them for nefarious reasons and things. Right. But it, it's, it, it, it is this kind of special interest thing, right? Where like the normal people don't have a lobby. Right. <laughs> right? Like, mm-hmm. like special interests have, you know, amazing resources to like, and, and this is even bipartisan. Like if you're a Republican. Right. Right. That is for I mean, sensible gun control legislation. They'll find a Democrat that's for unrestricted kind of gun rights. And, and just kind of like, you know, it's, it's not even partisan. It's just kind of this single issue, special interests, you know, mountain of resources that keeps, I think, us from doing things that largely we most of us agree on. Right. So something similar happening here inside this moment around the public health. Right? Yeah, right. Like cuz I I found I saw this study or, or this poll the other day that like 77% of Republicans think that the stay-at-home measures are appropriate or should be stricter. And so you think, right. wow, you're like, wow. And then, so then w- when you tune into cab- cable news and you're thinking, you know, like, uh, you know, some of the conservative voices are saying, you know, this is crazy. We've got to open up. Most of their own constituency thinks, no, we should be safe. Just like they also think that common sense background checks are a good idea. Do right? you want to read something else for us? <laughs> yeah, um, Sure. Um, let me see. Well, this one speaks a little um, to this idea of what we control and what we don't. Um, and it, um, again, it's uh, you, you might notice another, another thing going on with these poems that I think your listeners might resonate with is that I'm going out to nature where I can, which I have the luxury of doing because I live where I can walk. So you have the wasp nest and things. So this one is called, and it's another question poem, and it's or a praise poem, and it's called Can I in This Quivering? So the quivering is all the spring that's been breaking out around us. Can I in this quivering? Can I in this quivering see slight variation between bloom and burn? Or in this moonscape of pulse, single out assassin from arrow? In this quivering, can I shard from urgency its refraction in sleep, discern from death the ways it observes its level in chance. In this quivering, which is leaf unfolding into bright day, can I its beauty deny? Or from this well of grief work otherwise than up and out? 
what the scripture teaches of oblivion, that such aloneness as the desert offers, does it also valve an opening? Can I this quiver simultaneously a becoming and its opposite? But my imaginaries a burning thing, my imaginaries, these seconds following one another over cliffside, can I its beauty, this quivering which is the leaf budding, which is a tree come back, though each is to arrow and assassin born? In this moonscape, my imaginaries with the dead drinking its cold light, my imaginaries late coming home. In this quivering, can I, O oh, my late comer, which is sugar mixed with water, set out for this hungry which flutters from well of grief what otherwise than up and out my god my god of this beauty which befalls me what would you have me make what would you make of me again i i hear like the echoes of something from the last poem like this amazing when you're outdoors you have the sense of um freedom and finitude Right, yes, that that, that, yeah. that that you can do things, you can walk, you can dream, you can pray, you can laugh, you can love, and yet also, in the midst of those things, your capacity to do them could be cut down or minimized or right. eradicated, and so you, it's it's again walking this razor thin line of human existence between this tremendous sense of freedom and agency and finitude and and fragility, right? And death, I mean, the co constant, like, death around one. You know, I think um, it's just, uh, it's just always both, you know? I mean. Do you think, it, do you think there's part of the, do you think that part of it is that the fragility gives meaning to our freedom? I don't know. I mean, I know what you mean. The gives meaning part is hard for me, though. Like, the, you'll know from reading my book, I like rail against the idea of giving meaning to things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really do. I fight like a, I don't want to think and I don't believe like some things are really meaningless, but that relationship of the things being meaningless to the mystery in the. And that, and that literally is that I, mean, I remember when I was in seminary, like, yeah, a, a professor quoting Kierkegaard saying, "Like evil and sin is absurd," and he said, "Literally absurd in Latin means without meaning." Like, right. So these things, these things that terrorize our lives are often are with yeah. We, and sometimes I think that when philosophers or theologians or intellectuals try to kind of do theodicy, they try to say, "Well, here's how you can have a good God and a good reality," and right. and, and he right. explained evil. It actually creates more evil because it, it actually winds up tr sort of trying to give meaning point. to things that have no meaning. Well, or even to argue oneself into an into a point of committing violence or excusing violence, which was sort of Hannah Arendt's yeah. point in the origins of totalitarianism, that good arguments can be used to bad ends, you know, um, yeah. to justify an action in the face of violence or... Um, the, to intellectualize when one should act, um, this kind of thing. 
But in my case, you know, as I talk to you and in these reflections, I know that like, and as you bring up different theologians and I grew up Southern Baptist. So I think that this stuff is in my blood. These are the things that- Southern Baptist, these are the people that put the fun back in fundamentalism. (laughs) I had an unusual pastor. I did not know that the Southern Baptists preached against drinking and dancing till I was grown. (laughs) Good for you. I so I but but what I did do is read the Bible three times through by the time I was fifteen years old because that was the curriculum. So like I just have this stuff. I mean, like a, a lot of times I have a a colleague who's or a friend who's a Jesuit priest. He's eighty three and he spent thirty years in the Middle East. He's like a super fascinating person and I did the spiritual exercises with him even though I'm southern I grew up southern baptist I'm not catholic. Um when I talk to theolo- people who are trained in real theology like him or you like they can feel the threads that are in my belief system better than I can but it's pretty classic the things that I bring, right? Yeah, no, this is the thing like I mean I think that, that this classic ancient tradition, right? That that mm-hmm. kind of um it's wisdom kind of represents and represents and represents itself over time. Right. I mean, because there are reasons why I always think there are reasons why you have large groups of people um, who go to a mosque or go to a synagogue or go to a church or are Buddhist and go to a temple or Hindus, like, because those traditions have proved that they can evolve over time and make sense of vast changes in the human condition. There's a reason why people, there are not many people worshiping Thor or Zeus or things like that in the world, because those traditions kind of just wind up being um, like, you know, re- reality TV show pageantry. Um, they, they're not I mean, very I transcendent. Have, I, have a, I have a sort of poetry centric view of that, which is that those are the beautiful, those were the beautiful, beautifully crafted messages. Those were the ones that depended on song and repetition and poetry. You know, yeah, but, and don't, but don't you think there's something about those traditions, the ancient traditions that we would call paganism or mythology or something that they just don't speak. The, 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 their time is so conditioned and limited. And yet it, the yeah, reason why people. I think it has to do with the lexicon of it though, is what I would say. Yeah. The le- around it yeah and i mean i mean i think that that's even in your poetry what i hear is like this recovery of these basic truths that mm-hmm. most transcendent kind of world religious consciousness is dialed into right i mean this is why interreligious dialogue is possible because there there is this sort of i mean the more things change the more they stay the same <laughs> for sure for sure and I, I, I mean i think you're your own poetry, um, you know, points to that. So are you going to do more prose writing now? I mean, is this, it's like, because it seems like the Corona thing has been really fruitful for you around lyrical poetic kind of production. But I mean, the trauma stuff also is what, you know, kind of birthed your prose careers. I mean, is, is, is this kind of mass trauma, you know, getting you to circle around the, you know, the, the, the bed like an animal again? <laughs> it's funny. I, I don't know. I mean, um, the first 
really important essay in the poetry. I mean, in the, in the in the new book is the one I wrote about that was totally immersive. It's the one that tells the story of the first few hours, like when I heard about the shooting and going to pick my older son up. You you I know you probably remember it because it's yeah yeah yeah. So like if if I'm gonna write like I did about Sandy Hook, about this experience, it'll be because eight months from now, I am compelled to get it out of my body the way that I had to get that out of my body. So this is like therapeutic with trauma for you, the prose in a way that that poetry is probably leaning into the dark and stormy stuff in your, and beautiful stuff in your body and soul. It seems like the prose practice is the way you get the stuff out. Well, I think it's also like it has to do with if I know what the subject is, it's probably an essay. And if I don't know what the subject is, it's probably a poem. Because you probably noticed, I mean, I feel bad reading these poems aloud to somebody who can't even see them on the page. And like, there's not a real subject to them. They kind of move around, right? Like not the way an essay would. Like in some ways the poems like are searching for a subject or searching to, to escape a subject. And that, and so like I would write essays if I had something in particular that I was examining as a subject. And then if I had no idea what I was going to say in the next three words, I was probably, I'd probably be writing a poem. They, I probably have to get both of them out of my body that's interesting, though, because I think, you know, I mean, again, we were talking earlier about late modernity, and I wonder if the essay is this kind of form of, like, trying to control things, right? Like, where are we? And, and we do need for to control sure, things. I mean, sure. it, it, it's good that we to, have roofs over heads and climate, con- climate control in our houses in the winter and things like this. But, but also, isn't there this sense that, like, wow, we, uh, where poetry maybe gets into the thing that we, we never have any control over anything anything absolutely it's the confrontation with the void it's like poetry says what if nothing has any meaning okay i'm gonna sit with the idea that nothing has any meaning i'm going to let that happen to me that's sort of what poetry is doing when i go to it you know well i'm glad you go to it carol i mean you you go to it incredibly well and i i look forward to I hope many more years of hearing you in control and out of control <laughs> between poetry and prose, because you do both incredibly well. So thank you for writing um, a, a book of prose, The Nail and Tree, and thank you for spending some time talking with me about it and sharing your verse, yeah. which has really blessed me. Oh, thank you so much, Scott. And thank you for continuing to do this this podcast into the into the void of the moment we're in. <laughs> in the void, right? <laughs> That could be your next book, Into the Void. Thanks, Carol. I appreciate it. Okay, take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.